I am uh, warming up to Cuba Libres just in general. I, I thought you already liked them. I, I liked them. They I did not year. like them that much way back. And, and then, now you really like yeah. them? Or I'm, I'm starting to really <clears throat> like them. Okay. Do you like them better when they're called Cuba Libres than when they're called rum and coke? Uh, yeah, actually, mainly because I think there's a focus on... Because you're, you're into freedom? Yeah, of course. That's why big you're, into Cuba. That's why you're a big Ted Cruz supporter. Yes. <laughs> um, no, I think when, when when it's like rum and coke, people literally just pour two things together and just hand you a drink, right? Um, when, so you think when when you order a Cuba Libre, people are more careful about the proportions? I think there's the lime. I think it's the lime. Oh, thing. it's the lime. Well, it's well, the, everything's yeah. better with the lime. Just about. Yeah. Every there, there's a focus to the lime, which actually makes the drink. Um, That's true. I do prefer a uh, a mule to a whiskey ginger or whatever mm-hmm. because of the lime. Mm-hmm. I think so. That's that's a good point. Yeah, it's not a garnish. It's something that's muddled into the drink. Mm-hmm. I think I just like limes in general. Um, yeah, me too. Especially in cocktails. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, well that's cool. I'm glad you're. Uh, I'm glad you're working on your uh, your palette. Yeah. Um, Next week, lemons. <laughs> yeah, I don't know where we go after that. I don't know. Uh, Are you? There's a little more citrus. Uh, you know, variations, uh, grapefruits. They're, they're hard to get into. Yeah. Well, then you got you got oranges. You got kumquats. You got uh, um, you got celery root. You got uh, Jerusalem artichokes. You got Are they <laughs> citrus? <laughs> no. You're just but they're, they're just different vegetable or fruits. Uh, um, so okay, so you've been—that's what you've been spending your time uh, working on in your personal life. Yeah, it's, it's just limes. <laughs> yeah, just limes. Um, what about your professional life, Wilson? Uh, so it, it's been a busy, I think, uh, New Year so far. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, obviously the two of us we've been working pretty heavily on the the VizWiz thing. It's I think running fairly smoothly at this point. We still got like a few it. things moving forward. I think there, uh, but. You know, on the commercial side, it's actually been kind of interesting just to kind of um, reorganize a little bit. Uh, so we're now more focused uh, on education, mm-hmm. more focused, of course, on our uh, commercial sort of small, medium business uh, sector. Yeah. So, so for, for some context there, Tableau is a growing company, right? Every, every year or so, we're adding a lot of people and we're kind of restructuring our sales organizations mm-hmm. a lot to, to fit with that to make sure that the teams we have are, are working well and we don't have too many people or too few people. So um, you're, you're experiencing a lot of that. Oh yeah. Um, so of course with the, the healthcare moving into a much more specific vertical for mm-hmm. us, uh, you know, my side of the house focuses on everything else other than that. And of course with that, um, there's been a lot to kind of look after with uh, the pipeline looking after, of course, how, how to, how do we do things better? Now that we're a little bit more focused, right? So have you found that you 
are is that do you feel like that's a big part of your job um just looking at the kind of operational sales uh data that we track it is uh so it doesn't have to be i think there's definitely of course uh SEs that you know specifically you know they have a, a great connection with mm-hmm. basically their their sales reps they know of course how to reach out to the guys um and get the right information for the things they need to focus on uh for me though um mainly because there is a lot of reps to cover and it's basically a changing landscape mm-hmm. uh data plays a big role to it. and so that's why i've been kind of focusing uh, uh focusing my, my time on specifically yeah. looking at how i can leverage alpo a little bit better i've actually kind of built up something that's kind of cool um so it's this dashboard that I kind of built up to really kind of understand changes within our pipeline. Um, okay. Uh, yeah, I'm curious about that because I think for me, I don't think a whole lot about the operational side. I, I mean, I do mm-hmm. think about the data we track internally for various reasons, but I think it's more um, just out of curiosity and maybe more kind of how the team is operating. And it sounds like for you, maybe it's because you are. Um, working with more salespeople than I am, or maybe it's because, you know, there's maybe newer people in your organization. I'm not sure. Um, you're a little bit more of an authority on how that the process gets organized to some extent. I think so. Um, and that's part of, I think mm-hmm. what's always been a little bit more fun with the commercial side, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's a, it's opportunity for us to really kind of play a bigger role. I think in that sales process, um, just to make sure that as we kind of think about it, um, the momentum of everything is moving correctly, right? So we're not as op-oriented, but mm-hmm. we're looking at the overall momentum and the progress of the business overall. So it's 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 kind okay. of a, it's always been interesting, at least for me, to kind of compare the two sides of the business that way. Yeah. So I mean, just for context, if if you're listening, uh, this week's episode, I think we're going to do sort of a, a kind of state of the Wilson and Charles world. You know what we've been working on, what it's like at Tableau right now. Um, some of the challenges we're facing in our jobs. And I, I'm curious about this part of, of Wilson's world because it's, um, it's, uh, it's an interesting thing that I think we're constantly thinking about at Tableau. We have a lot of meetings where we're talking about how we're tracking data internally. Mm-hmm. We use data on our sales process and how much time we spend uh, with certain customers and the projections for uh, opportunities that we think will close within the quarter to project how we're going to do. And, and that affects how we report things to the market and, and the world, right? Mm-hmm. So that's, I, I always just wonder what the process is um, mm-hmm. behind that. And you said you've been looking a lot about change metrics. Can you tell me a little more about that? Yeah. So, I mean, one of the things that I think we, we do a really good job at, um, and a lot of credit goes to our sales ops team for, for doing this, is that we do a very good job of tracking uh, what's currently happening. Right, was the current view of our pipeline. Mm-hmm. Um, so, of course, all of our projections about what, what's going to happen this quarter, as well as some of the historical analysis with it. We're still getting into it, but in terms of trending and things like that, we, we've done a pretty good job of being able to track some of those information across uh, that that view that's there. Um, but what we're typically actually, what I felt was lacking, at least for for how I typically like to kind of engage some of my reps, was understanding how things have changed, maybe on a smaller increment that's there. How how, how it changed week to week uh, from the last time I, of course, chatted with them, or of course, uh, from the last time, of course, that we've engaged. So really understanding, of course, uh, from our own hygiene of um, recording information, right, our predictions and things like that, our own data hygiene to it. Okay. Um, 
what were we really doing? So that's an interesting topic because it's it's actually a challenge that many of our customers deal with. Mm-hmm. Uh, we get asked a lot about how they can use Tableau to uh, do a better job of tracking how the sales team is performing. Right. Um, and sometimes that comes in the form of giving the sales team more tools to interrogate their own yep. business. And sometimes that's an uh, operational organization reporting on the sales team. Right. Um, so what are some of the things you're looking at? When you look at, you know, you said changes and opportunities, whether you're, you're recording uh, changes in deal amounts or, yeah. or dates or things like that. Um, what's the scope of that? Are you, right. tell me more about it. Cool. Um, so one of the things I noticed, of course, is, um, you know, when you're looking at something like a pipeline, um, mm-hmm. you know, you might be, of course, dealing with a pipeline, let's say, of, of $2 million right now. And today it's $2 million, tomorrow it's $2 million, and next day it's still mm-hmm. $2 million. But of course, we know activities have actually taken place. There are deals that will evolve and become bigger deals. There are deals that will... Uh, reduce in size, or of course might fall out of the pipeline in the same way deals come back in. And a lot of times the way that we react to it is that once you get up to a certain aggregate level, um, obviously of course you don't care about the very specifics, but in our role, we have to kind of teeter between those two different things, right? We need to know what we need to react to in order to of course maintain the overall aggregates uh, in the way that they are. So 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 do you find that there are enough moving parts enough people underneath that like the aggregate totals for how much we're projecting may not change even though there's a lot of there's a lot of things changing kind of underneath there's yeah i I think there's a lot of that happening Mm -hmm. um especially in the commercial business right we're dealing with a lot of sales reps in in this area um a lot of deals that they're over overseeing so in a given in a given day of course um you know changes that might occur uh, might balance everything out, but at the same time, when we're actually dealing with it, um, what becomes priorities really changes, right? Immediately so because of that. Those what changes. percent of the company are you looking at? You're looking at the commercial team mm-hmm. as a whole. Uh, commercial team as a whole, North but really America commercial. Specifically for me, I focus. Um, so my territory that I'm kind of overseeing right now really focuses on the northeast uh, of commercial. Okay. Um, but technically speaking. You know, the, the way that our commercial SEs really operate is that we do look at North America as a whole. Yeah, I'm just trying to get an idea of the scope of this and how, mm-hmm. you know, what what impact on the business this has. So if you're looking right. at Northeast, there's probably also commercial teams in like the Southeast and the West and the Central. Are there four districts? Are there six approximately? Uh, when I, I'm trying to actually think of how many SEs we actually have right now. I think we have, let's see... Uh, Wilson's counting on his fingers. I, this is the only way we're I all know. on the edge of our seats. This is my accounting degree at work. I think you have like around seven or eight. Uh, okay. <laughs> it so, took me a while yeah. to count. And then the, right, the but... commercial is what? Like it's what? Something like 20 or 30% of the company yeah. revenue? Yep. Um, okay. So you're, you're, you're looking at like a tenth or a twentieth of the business, basically, if you yeah. if you break it down, probably a little smaller, but um, right. somewhere in you know a, a significant fraction, but not a huge fraction of mm-hmm. the company. And you're saying that even in that subgroup, which mm-hmm. is maybe five percent or less of the business, mm-hmm. the aggregate is big enough that we don't notice when 
some of those opportunities, significant opportunities right. change from day to day. And, and that's a good thing, right? When we mm-hmm. think about basically sort of from a management perspective, we want to be able to have enough of a scale to hedge our bets. But at the same time, when we're actually dealing with the actual mechanics of a deal, how do we support our customers? You have to be able to know which become our well, priority and which don't. It's right? a good thing from a management perspective because it provides some consistency in knowing whether we're going to meet our goals or right. things like that. Yeah. But it might not be good in a uh, volatility perspective because we don't notice the volatility that each of the reps incur, right. uh, which is a big part of having a functioning sales team is making sure your reps can attain their goals. Right. And and, and that ends up being basically sort of where um, a lot of our focus is, mm-hmm. uh, uh, is on, right? Of course, where do we focus our time? How do we set, make sure that we're enabling um, people in the right way? Um, and so if there are these volatility issues, A, we're tracking them, and B, of course, how do we actually monitor it uh, effectively? Okay. So on a day-to-day perspective mm-hmm. in this subset of the business you're looking at, how many significant opportunities are you tracking uh, So on approximately? A, I have to take a look back. Um, so in, I think in an overall pipeline, we might be dealing with 30 or so uh, deals that's For there. For your region? Right now, yeah. Uh, for my patch. And I think my patch is very specific to, I want to say, four states right now. Um, and so... Uh, obviously, of course, people with different regions. Some folks, mm-hmm. of course, covering most of Canada. I'm thinking yeah. Jeremy. In, in okay, this so instance. it's in the yeah. tens. Yeah. Um, how often are there changes um, that you're tracking there? Pretty frequent. Um, and I, you know, this is a, a normal sales operation. As you, of course, mm-hmm. are talking to customers, you'll learn more information that will inform you as to what how you should change it. Mm-hmm. And it's actually more scary when you don't see change than than not. Right. So okay. we do actually see some very regular types of changes. And of course, uh, even as I'm thinking about it, uh, in the last week or so, um, I noticed, of course, that there were just in deal changes, about seven deals that completely changed stages. Mm-hmm. And that means, of course, a different priority week. level. Yeah. Wow. Um, how, what is, is do, you, do you have an idea of what the average cycle time is for an opportunity of kind of the size you're tracking? Is it closer to a couple, a few months? Is it closer to many months? Is it, is it in weeks range? Um, so yeah, overall pipeline, I think what we're tracking is typically deals that are of a specific size within this quarter. And of course, mm-hmm. typically next quarter. I, I mm-hmm. rarely see uh, things go out, going yeah. out to Q4, which is very but, different than what you guys do, right? But opportunities in general, do they close in the same quarter that they're opened? Uh, that's that's a good analysis mm-hmm. that I think we need a better idea for. I think my typical deal age, um, and I guess this might get it gets into a little bit more sensitive. I think it's a little bit longer yeah. than a quarter. Okay. Um, but um, yeah, yeah, I don't want to get into the details um, just because this is like a public podcast. But I do, I do think it's interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, the reason I was thinking about it from that perspective mm-hmm. of uh, is. Um, you know, what is the appropriate amount for deals to change, right? If if we've got a sales cycle that has six or seven stages in it and deals typically are six-month cycle time, just right. hypothetically, then one deal should change every two or three weeks, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so if you're seeing seven out of the 30 deals you're tracking right. changing in the course of a week, that seems like more frequently than it should. Um, I don't know if that gives us an idea of It's hard to say, or... right? And I, I think the, the, the risky thing for us to do right now is to um, 
conclude too quickly without all the facts on the table. Um, what we do know is that there's a lot of changes that occur. There are changes that we should manage. But on the flip side of it, right, is it bad or, or not? There's, I think, a lot of concepts in there that we should consider, right? Um, a, the linearity of a deal. Um, and of course, doing, uh, you know, whether it flows through that deal cycle as linear, as what most sales process uh, should, you know, really encourages. Uh, so of course, mutual interest goes into discover, discover goes into validate, right? Those types of things that's there. Um, are there different profiles of, of things that's there? And, and we talked about this, I think, a little bit earlier as well, right? What is a what should we be comparing specific deployments or opportunities against in order to really understand it more effectively, right? So okay. there's the concept right now that you know we we we're not vertical specific. We're we're not always selling the same size. We're not thinking about basically we're we're almost tailor making each opportunity. For the customer that's there. So do you track um, like for deals that are a certain size, mm -hmm. um, what the average time per stage is and compare that to current open deals or anything like that? Uh, I know that the metric is out there. I think mm -hmm. sales ops has actually been tracking some of those information. Mm -hmm. um, but that's not really the focus of your analysis no, right not, now. No, not right now. Okay. Uh, my big problem was specifically what I, what I said before, right? You know, when we see these aggregate non-changes uh, mm -hmm. that occur, but that tells me nothing about the focus of my time, right? The mm -hmm. fact that I have $2 million today, $2 million tomorrow, $2 million next day, uh, well, it tells me nothing about whether the health of the business as well as, of course, what my priorities should be. So what are things, what are things that you will notice that will help you reprioritize your time? I think it's really just a... Um, seeing changes and knowing that it's something worth investigating if i see basically that people have discounted a little in order to pull a close date a little bit earlier mm -hmm. that's actually somewhat normal practice that's there right um, yep. or if uh, people have actually said okay well there's some additional um uh, licenses that need to be added or of course maybe of course uh, adding services to the opportunity those are all somewhat normal changes or even shifting it so that the projection may be at the end of the quarter that's there. What might be a little bit more concerning is things that we know um, that was originally slated that might be pushed off to next quarter all of a sudden, right? Uh, or events where we know that a deal has dramatically changed from a deal size that's there. That might mean that they're completely evaluating different products altogether and things that I need to understand as to why we've actually made some of those uh, more, more tangible changes. Okay, so changes in amounts, changes in dates, mm -hmm. changes in maybe the allocation of licenses. Yep. Um, it sounds like every one of those might cause you to raise priority. Mm -hmm. um, or is there anything that you would see that would make you lower priority? Is it like if, if it gets pushed out to a later quarter or something does that make you say i don't need to spend as much time on that now it may lower priority but it warrants investigation right it warrants me knowing why we basically mm -hmm. made that judgment call. so it's almost giving you like an action list yeah. if, if the things the things have changed say i i need to spend some time on this right now mm -hmm. um and I, I, my argument i think is mm -hmm. that for most support staff including us that is probably much more concerning to us right it's not things it's the changes in plan as opposed to the plan itself, right? And, and there's some argument, I think, that's to that. But 
uh, for the way that I was looking at it. I was looking at how do I actually manage those changes and be able to explain those changes. No, it's an interesting model for sales because I think um, typically when sales organizations analyze where they should be spending their time, it's a little more qualitative, mm-hmm. right? Whereas this is pretty binary. It's just saying yep. if there was a change, I should focus some time on it. If there wasn't a change, I'm probably okay prioritizing that lower than the things where there yeah. were changes. And it's not necessarily that every change will warrant something that's there. If something moves from, mm-hmm. uh, we know that people signed off and said, okay, we're moving it to the next stage. Mm-hmm. Perfectly fine, right? But there is a normal cadence and a normal behavior to it. Mm-hmm. And it's worth basically tracking basically those behaviors. It's um, the only thing I'm, I wonder is if we lose like the... Um, maybe business development or account nurturing activities mm-hmm. that we feel I think as a company are necessary to be successful in larger accounts. Maybe that's not something you think about as much, but I that's it, the only thing I'd be concerned about. It, it's something that's interesting that you kind of raise about basically the commercial business, right? Um, and this is something that's very different, I think, mm-hmm. between just the two segments of business. Not to say that one different dramatically different from a support level or not but one of the big things that we focus on is specifically active ops uh, whereas I think you guys focus a lot on account development and mm-hmm. things along those lines that's there um, we have def- definitely other um, resources that I think focus I think on the account development and we still do a number of activities along those lines that's there but for the things that are in play right um if we are running a quarter to quarter business which a lot of sales organizations do um it ends up focusing our um it allows for us to make sure that we can achieve those results yeah um i mean i mean i think it's interesting from that perspective of there's these two different business models that tableau both approaches more of an enterprise methodology Mm -hmm. and more of a kind of commercial selling methodology um and yeah i guess i guess that's the biggest thing that strikes me because when i'm thinking about the types of things i'm doing we're in the same with the same title right we're in the same role but the way i end up thinking about things is quite different because i'm thinking more of from that kind of account development perspective Mm -hmm. not that either one's right um but it's just it's it's striking that the situations are that different uh between us um, I'm curious about if any of your customers, if you've had the opportunity to share the way you look at this with any of your customers, or if any of them have challenges that have led you to think about things this way. Um, so obviously this is internal data, uh, right? But probably wouldn't share. But but uh, you're right. I, I think the, a lot the, of customers want a to. lot of customers think about this mm-hmm. uh, and, and run into these issues. I think mm-hmm. um, actually when I was in services, this is I think where first tackled basically this. It was working with the sales ops uh, team and they want to understand basically changes in time and latest changes and historical trends and things like that. Mm-hmm. And it led me to really realize that when we're thinking about historical analysis, we have to, of course, look at it from a couple of different lenses in order to really get to a full understanding of what's there. Uh, so, you, of course, you have your current lens of understanding what's currently there. Mm-hmm. You have your historical trends about basically sort of the behavior of macro changes that's there. Uh, and of course, you you also need to track specific changes, uh, both from a snapshot perspective, as well as these key indicators that will help you understand basically how you got there. So it's both an analysis of history, the changes that got you, of course, 
from that historical point and then finally explaining how you get to your current state that's today. And so I, I think it's uh, thinking through those couple of ideas. And there's a lot that goes into this, so I can geek out, I think, for mm-hmm. a full hour on this. But ideas around data structure and optimal ways around it, as well as, of course, what are some decent representations and concepts to actually explain these stories effectively. Yeah. I mean, I the, the reason I thought of it that way was um, I was talking to Scott Taylor last week, mm-hmm. and I had done some analysis about how our customers are engaging with like tech support and um, training and things like that and, and saying, mm-hmm. you know, can we, is there an opportunity for us to present that information to our customers in a way that says, here's how we look at this, mm-hmm. not only from the perspective of here's some information about how you're engaging with Tableau, but also you guys should be doing this too. You right. should be thinking about things this way too. Um, if you're not doing this, then you need, you need to invest in it because right. look at all the value you can get from it. Um, I mean, do, do you have, do you have any measure or idea uh-huh. of the ROI you get from that type of analysis? Do you, are there certain efficiencies that you can track or is there a certain amount of like, do you, can you track revenue that you wouldn't have been able to touch otherwise? Anything like that? Or are you not there yet? Uh, definitely not there at ROI. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm not. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm thinking about it more from a sales perspective because right. I understand how it could be operationally useful for you. But if we wanted to expand yeah. that, you know, there's a lot of customers, like I said, that ask about this a lot. Are and there I, ways we could show them what they could get from that approach? I think I, I'll probably need to <clears throat> really go down a route of running a, well, there'll be a number of articles to really kind of talk about historical analysis correctly. I think mm-hmm. we've seen challenges before where people are looking at durations and trying to understand the snapshots of per day, uh, things like that, that kind of comes up when we're thinking about history of data and how do we approach it. Um, from an ROI perspective, I can't really say what, you know, how many dollars we've saved. Uh, what I can say is I've been more efficient at my job. I've been uh, able well, to explain everything a lot better, right? Um, yeah, I mean, I think if you could point to maybe opportunities that you wouldn't have yeah. gotten to as soon or that you wouldn't have noticed you you know you would have had to be reactive. You would have had to have the salesperson right. come to you with their hair on fire and be asking you, you know, to help out in a emergency rather right. than you kind of seeing the change as it comes. That's that is something that you can point to and yeah. say, oh, well, you know, we we might not have been able to yep. realize this revenue without. Yeah. That. So I mean, one of the big things I was working on was shifted out. I think this quarter, and and mm-hmm. it's it's a pretty momentous change that's there. And of course, before. Uh, Anybody else, right, uh, really noticed basically those changes. The the dashboards that I was looking at was able to just let me know, hey, that, that changed in terms of quarters uh, that we were working in. Uh, and, of course, a quick phone call, um, you know, allowed for me to actually know that, hey, this is just a reassessment from the salesperson's perspective and that no new information that's there, right? Because those okay. types of big things can cause some big scares. And when you have those types of scares, right, all of a sudden, you you waste a lot of activities uh, doing sort of retroactive investigation, whereas I think a quick phone call can clarify and mitigate some of those uh, fire drills. Yeah, I mean, interesting stuff. I, I would like to see you put up a, a little article series or something like that yeah. on our website about this, because I think there actually is a lot of value to be learned from the approach you took, and it's hard to communicate exactly the analysis you're doing right. over a radio podcast, but... 
um, I think it'd be interesting to kind of see. Imagine a select statement. Oh. <laughs> um. Anyway, cool stuff. Um, let's take a break. We're at the half hour mark. There's a siren going by my window, and I'm going to get a cup of tea. Gross. Be right back. <laughs> Retro causality. Yes. What is it? To vet things that haven't occurred affecting the present. Basically, it's it's a it's an issue with most time travel backwards movies. Oh, it's like if you kill yourself in the past, do you? Yep. Do you live in the future? Mm-hmm. That's that's the idea. That makes sense. The term would make me think that that's what it meant. Yep. And so there was always basically the issue, right? You can't be uh, your. If you go back and kill Hitler, you you can't father your grandfather type of concept, right? So it's always. But okay, so is that actually like? So it's actually addressed in a couple of different ways, which is really interesting. I think, uh, what call it? Um, is it like used as a proof that time travel is impossible or is it like, well, it's proof that time travel backwards is impossible. Um, but there's also actually other concepts to it, but like, what can we call it? Uh, Stephen Hawkins has has a concept there where there's like a feedback issue that prevents it from occurring, cause like giant explosion. That's the summary. It'll cause a giant explosion if you go back and kill your kill your mom. If if you attempt to do it, (laughs) I forgot Um, what that. But uh, apparently, it's actually is it like Stephen Hawking will cause a giant explosion because he doesn't want the universe to to have to deal with the burden of your house. Did you listen to that You Made It Weird episode where they're doing an impression of racist Stephen Hawking? (laughs) (laughs) You should look that up. It's awesome. I'm not going to repeat it, but it was good. Um, Apparently, retrocausality is actually possible in quantum physics to some effect. Well, isn't that the idea? Isn't that how most people think time travel would work is you find a way to travel somewhere faster than the speed of light, so relatively you 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 time traveled even though you didn't actually go back in time and when you're when you're traveling at a speed close to the speed of light you'll age slower than someone who is traveling so that's how you time travel forward in time right um you you get closer and closer to the speed of light but to go uh a you can't go faster than than speed according to relativity and uh you end up basically, and so there's no mechanic basically to propel us back in time. And of course, Hawking's the the thing that I was raising was a chronology protection conjecture, which would destroy any closed time like structure before it could be used. So there's no such thing as basically the as a self creating events. Okay. But hypothetically, in quantum physics, there are things that can. Unless you have love, like in interstellar. Inter- interstellar, right? Love yeah. cl- crosses time right. and space. And technically, there is, and, and this is true, 
Uh, it's a hypothetical particle called tachyons. They're not just in Star Trek. But but they're probably called that because of Star Trek. Probably. I mean... <laughs> yeah, Star yeah. Trek. <laughs> probably, yeah. Okay. <laughs> but yeah. Uh, kind of interesting to kind of read through. But yes, the, the whole idea that like... There's some fringe sciences about basically the idea that things can pop in and out of existence uh, without causality and could therefore actually be, uh, well, could travel without this constraint that's there. Things can pop in and out of existence without causality? Mm -hmm. Is that, are they saying that's possible? So like radioactive decay is sort of that concept. Hmm. Or I think that's there. Huh. Now that I have destroyed all credibility because I've talked about all this, it's actually mostly on the Wikipedia page. That's what I've been reading. Uh, <laughs> let's talk about something. Well, anyone can contribute to it so you know you're getting the best information. Uh, well, it's on the internet, so facts, right? Mm -hmm. huh. Okay, so that's what Stephen, Stephen Hawking is working on. Let's get back to the equally complex stuff that we're working on. We're close, two of us. Um, so, yeah. Uh, what have you been working on recently? So, I have, I mean, I think we've, as we've outlined before on our show, we have similar jobs, but very different responsibilities. Mm -hmm. and, and I have sort of three different customers that I spend a vast majority of my time with. And a lot of time we're spending with them is based around just how to get them to use Tableau more, to adopt uh, the, the software and kind of bring it into their everyday processes and um, to sort of think about it the way we think they should think about it um, and how to kind of coach them to a, a better outlook for analytics. So the last couple of weeks I've had sort of a couple interesting challenges of those customers that I thought I would sort of run by you because I'm mm -hmm. curious to see how you might approach them. So yeah. one of them was uh, last week and I was visiting a customer and this is a financial organization mm -hmm. and um, they, they're they pretty new to Tableau and we got into sort of an interesting uh, debate about how to how to work with their data. So as most large companies do, they have a lot of data. They have data that's uh, stored in a big enterprise data warehouse, and it's got millions and millions of records. Mm -hmm. um, and they kind of traditionally have been running various queries to get the data out and put it in SAS or Excel or something like that to just run metrics on it and then kind of get uh, mm -hmm. numbers that they can then report to the business. But right. Um, they've been looking for ways to make that a little more interactive, to make their analysis a little more efficient, and that's where Tableau comes in. What they found is the data, uh, just the query speed isn't very fast. This mm. is a really large data set. So we've just been talking about <clears throat> strategies they can use to effectively work with right. that data source, which is Teradata. It's a big, mm. big data warehouse. Right. right. Um, 
And the first thing they noticed us, they, they have been using trials of Tableau for a while. Mm-hmm. And the first thing they noted to us when we went and visited them was that it seemed like the query speed when they were, were going against those tables were, was really slow. Mm-hmm. And so we talked a little bit about um, maybe what the best way to, pro- to approach that would be. And typically our response as Tableau consultants when someone says that is if you try taking an extract of the data. So right. Tableau's in-memory data uh, engine that allows you to take uh, the data and store it uh, locally and process it with memory uh, to incru- improve query speed. Mm-hmm. And they said, yeah, they've tried it, but what was happening was it was taking a long time for them to create the data extracts right. because they actually have to take it out of the data source. They still have to run the query. It mm-hmm. turns it into, transforms it into this TDE file. Right. And then once that was there, it was actually quite fast, but they were concerned mm-hmm. about the amount of time that took to happen. Mm-hmm. And for uh, a, a common query that was maybe 80 million records in mm-hmm. size, it was taking them like eight or nine hours to create this extract. Right. Which is not... Um, it's not abnormal. It's, I it's mean, not when we talk about something of that size, it's, it's... Unusual. It might be a little slower than we would expect, but for a slow database, you know, that yeah. has a lot of it's, columns probably. And, it, it's the plumbing, right? Yeah. It, you know, you can't create mm-hmm. something that's faster than how fast it can, you yeah. know, push it out. So the thing that I thought was interesting about their concern, and I'm just trying to figure out, trying to figure out how to approach this with them, yeah. was that this was sort of an issue for them. They were kind of mm-hmm. saying, "Yeah, you know, we're we're thinking about this from an ad hoc data analysis perspective. We want to be able to have a question, right. ask the question of data, get the answer really quickly, and then right. move on, right? Which is how we want our customers to think about." Uh, data. We don't want them to think about it. They have to spend a bunch of time creating a report first. Mm-hmm. That's not the way we want them to per, to approach it. Um, but they're saying, well, we can't wait eight hours every time we have a question. Mm-hmm. And from my perspective, I mean, well, first of all, how would you approach that if sure. a customer came to came to you with that concern? What what are some yeah, I mean, there's do. a couple of things that we, we would look at immediately to try mm-hmm. to kind of mitigate some of those issues, right? So assuming that all of this is a requirement, this is the only way that we can do this, uh, the the main thing that we would look at is how do we actually close off that window as much as possible, right? Mm-hmm. From eight hours down to, you know, four hours, uh, something reasonable, at least at that point. Um, yeah, the, so the what, ways are some, I would, I would what are some think approaches? About, yeah, the, the ways I would think about it is... Uh, <laughs> Um, a, of course, are we optimizing the extract of, uh, effectively? Are we only pulling the right information or, of course, the summary level information that makes sense for an analysis? Mm-hmm. Um, because, of course, the, the less amount of data that you're uh, pumping through, right, uh, the faster, of course, in theory, that the job might take to complete. Now, beyond that, you want to start focusing on a couple of other issues, right? A, uh, the location of the data and when this extract actually takes place. If I'm pulling data uh, in a data center in Asia right now, mm-hmm. uh, be fairly long, mainly because we have to factor in things like network latency and things like that. So the distance definitely does matter. And of course, there's techniques there, like, for example, installing a copy of desktop onto the environment yep. um, or, of course, uh, putting a backgrounder directly there. Uh, that can be an issue. Uh, the third thing is really hardware, right? Um, so is it a constraint? Mainly because of not so much how fast it can be pushed out from that environment, uh, but really in terms of how fast that we can take that information and actually process it into the extract format. Um, yep. So on occasion, what I've seen is that you know people aren't optimizing for that. Uh, 
they're they don't uh, put their backgrounders on a separate mm -hmm. node uh, for that purpose, or they're not locating their backgrounders as we talked about earlier in the same location. Yeah, so you're thinking about it from the same perspective that I was. I mean, right. you're thinking about it from a workflow perspective. What can we do to, what process can we put in place to make sure this is efficient as possible? Right. right? Um, and that's kind of how I was thinking about it as well. And my message to the customer was, listen, we just need a process that will allow you to do this as efficiently as you can. Right. There's going to be limitations to how efficient we can make it, but we'll, we'll find the best possible workflow for you. The the in practice, mm -hmm. what an analyst is going to experience is that process is going to be triggered and executed automatically. Mm -hmm. So it's going to be done in the background. You're never going to have to go connect to data and click, pull in a new extract and wait, sit and wait that eight hours. Right. What if it does take eight hours? Well, it's going to happen overnight while you're uh, right. sleeping, and then you're going to get in the morning and you're going to have the data prepared for you and you're going to be right. ready to go. Um, and I, I think the struggle that they were having with that was. Um, actually a pretty interesting uh, thought process, which I think we want our customers to have, mm -hmm. uh, which is that's great when I know what my questions are in advance. Right. right? It's great when either a technical person or myself, the person that's actually preparing the data, knows what fields I'm going to need and things like that and can prepare them for me. Uh -huh. But if I'm sitting at my desk at 12 o'clock and I think of a question that I want answered and I don't want to spend more than five, 10 minutes answering it, uh -huh. then that may or may not already be in the system. Right. right. Um, so how do we, how do we solve for that? What do you think? I mean, again, so, so it's, it's interesting. I, I think that kind of the, the approach really kind of surmises that you can, uh -huh. uh, prepare all data for mm -hmm. analytical purposes or that you can anticipate. And I think this is more the point. Well, that's that you point can anticipate. You right? Yeah, you can anticipate all the questions that come up and therefore optimize mm -hmm. everything ahead of time. Um, and the reality, I think, that we're trying to really, mm -hmm. well, that, that we both kind of acknowledge, or at least our starting point is that you can't. You, you simply will not anticipate the questions uh, that will come. Uh, mm -hmm. Part of the analysis pro process is to ask questions that haven't been asked before. And so you will incur that cost regardless, mm -hmm. right? And so the extracts is a great opportunity for us to do it, to handle some of that optimization ad hoc, uh, but it's not necessarily uh, a, a means for us to, to replace a full stack uh, software behind yeah, the scene, and, right? And from a... Yeah, exactly. So um, it, it doesn't, it, from a, I guess there's a couple of things I'm thinking of at the same time. Let me organize my thoughts here. So um, yeah, exactly. So in terms of the extract and what that can solve for, right, right that's one standpoint, one, one thing that we have to think through there. Uh, I think the extract can solve for situations where, again, where they know what questions they're going to answer. Mm -hmm. uh, beforehand, but it also can can solve a portion of the ad hoc questions by in in tandem with like Tableau Data Server, um, mm -hmm. allowing them to anticipate maybe what data sources people want to look at, mm -hmm. not necessarily the specific questions they're going to be right. answering, but at least just where they're going to spend their time. Right. Um, that 
allows them to say, okay, well, we've, this, we've got a group of 10 people that are all asking questions of data. We know that these three or four tables are interesting to them, so let's make sure those are available. And yeah, if there's something that falls outside the ropes of that, then yeah, they may have to go create their own extract or go live against the database and have a query be slower or something like that. But that's going to be a small percentage of the total time they spend. Right. And the fact that you can do both of those activities in the same application is really important. Whereas, you know, it, traditionally in BI, it's really only for those pre-prepared questions. I, I think there's a couple of concepts to kind of wrestle through, right? Um, a, it's this idea of like optimizing all data for analytical purposes. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of a lot of teams that we work with um, want to get to that state, right? Yeah. It's, a, it's a desirable state, um, uh, even if, of course, regardless of attainability, right? That's the, the goal uh, that they kind of put and they, they, they stack every vendor against. Um, I, I think there's a bit of challenges that come with it. Some vendors, and I think there there's definitely, of course, uh, players in this space that um, that uh, one of the focuses that they do is really in the optimization first before really going down that route of analysis, right? Mm -hmm. um, so we think about it in that terms, of course, that makes sense that we need to think about pumping data in order to, well, that's, to provide access. That's an interesting point. It reminds me of a conversation I had a couple weeks ago. I was down in Washington, D.C. with a group of Tableau people, mm -hmm. and I was in a conversation with someone um, who used to work at one of our competitors, mm -hmm. uh, another commonly known kind of data analytics vendor um, that is a little bit more focused around the preparation and import of data into their in-memory engine, uh -huh. right? That's something they do pretty well. Um, and he said that when, uh, when they find customers who were building their data warehouse as they were embarking on their analytics project, right. they were kind of doing them in tandem, then that, that competitor would actually have an advantage because they could say, you don't need to invest a lot in a Teradata or yep. a Greenplum or, or, or Vertica or whatever. You can put a lot of that in our data engine. It's going to be built in and optimized for reporting. But, um, but think about what that, that is, right? It's, it's an entry ticket in order to even get into the analysis to begin with, mm -hmm. right? So the, the big thing there is, yes, that is important for the conversation, but it's important because of a very different reason, right? It's accessibility at that yeah. point. Um, yeah, I'm just wondering about from the perspective, this perspective, uh -huh. um, I think alternatively, we'd have the advantage when a customer already has a data warehouse that's pretty pretty right. well built out. Um, the problem that we face is when we, when we meet a customer like this whose data warehouse is by their own admission not really sufficient for reporting, right. um, we don't have a solution that they think is good enough for for that and it, it, i think part of that part of the problem is us making sure their expectation meets what is possible in technology and part of it is the fact that you know there's a slightly different philosophy with with tableau well it's it's the best breed thing and i, I keep thinking back to the old fred myers ads that i listened to uh, on a radio like okay one-stop shop thing um, um you, you can go there you can solve all your problems but <laughs> won't get the best of, of the breed, right? You won't, you know. So people from Seattle probably will get that reference. Um, people who um, maybe maybe aren't. I don't think Fred Meyer is a East have, Coast brand. Do they, do they it's kind of like, like a assist? Walmart or a Kmart, something yeah. like that. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. But but th there's that concept there. I think that that comes down to it, right? If you come to Tableau with that expectation that it will solve every BI problem, uh, I can, you know. 
nine out of ten times, I think, we, we basically will push back. We'll introduce partners. We'll, we'll, we'll think of mm-hmm. solutions that will include something outside of Tableau because we simply are not a full BI stack. And yeah. I, I don't think we ever surmised to be one. Um, it's just obviously we get stacked in there. Yeah, I, guess, um, I mean, the, the A-bomb we can drop in this situ- situation is like, well, what you really need is a fast-performing database. Right. right? And, and the reality, let, let's play out the hypothetical, mm-hmm. right? The reality is, yes, you can invest in a giant in-memory data engine mm-hmm. completely separate from Tableau. You can optimize and pump all your data through it. Mm-hmm. But there's a few realities that we have to realize. A, that's going to be very expensive if we mm-hmm. go down that route. And it's a it's expense that's incurred from a hardware perspective as well as, of course, uh, licensing, regardless yeah. of which vendor you choose, right? If you choose to in-memory or to, to migrate your entire data warehouse strategy, it's going to be expensive. The other side of it is around efficiency. I mean, similar to the idea that I was talking about earlier with changes within pipeline, the, the data structure behind the scene has to be unique, I think, around each analysis that people approach, right? And if we are going down the route of just migrating things over, chances are you'll actually overlook the the mechanisms or the structures that will allow for us to optimize the specific analysis that's there. And what we're doing is something a little bit more wholesale. Yeah, recently I've been noticing a lot with, uh, with I don't know if it's common to big enterprise companies or if it's just across the board, mm-hmm. that people get pretty attached to name brands and they think that's going to solve their problem as opposed to actually a a valuable strategy. Not necessarily the, you know, I'm not saying certain brands are better than others in their minds, but I think they, they put a lot of weight on, let's say a Teradata being a big data data warehouse and that's mm. that's what it is. So it doesn't right. matter. We don't have to think about our data strategy because we have Teradata. That's what it's built for. Um, and then they still don't put something together that's actually going to be responsive for them. Whereas they could probably use MySQL and if they actually spent some time thinking about the structure and how they wanted to architect their database, then it might perform better than so what they it, have, even though it's not. really funny because I was actually on a call with uh, Andrew um, just on last Monday and it was a uh, you know we're talking with this this company with a very pretty sophisticated use case around like actually interfacing with their external customers and they're doing everything off of MySQL and asking about Postgres mm-hmm. right they have decent performance because yeah. they're willing to put in the time to, to really optimize for their specific use cases that's there and so the big things that I actually end up seeing is yeah it, it's risky when you just offload it based off of brand recognition right mm-hmm. um yeah, you're, I don't know. I'm not yeah. going to make an analogy, I think. I, sometimes customers ask us what the best database is, right? And I I feel uncomfortable answering just because I don't want there to be a perception that all you need to do is buy a certain brand of database and mm-hmm. things will be okay. Um, I think it, it I, and I'm not a database expert, so this is just kind of what I've gathered secondhand in the market and spending a few years doing this. But it seems to me that um, if there's a market inefficiency in how people structure databases, it's actually logically building databases to be analytic warehouses, not just storage trash cans, you know, that that just house everything. uh, There's a few big problems that come up with it, right? I think it's just growth data in recent years, right? We have so many different new systems inputting data, the discussion of big data that has kind of 
emerged over the last couple of years as mm-hmm. well. So we have to, of course, think about a strategy with that. Um, people haven't been able to react quickly enough uh, to approach it. And of course, the big process is, do you have to optimize it first in order to analyze it? Or is analysis going to inform our optimization? And I think that is an open debate that not mm-hmm. a lot of people have, uh, you know, they, they don't know how to think about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think um, I think from this customer's perspective, it's kind of, in some perspective, it's right in our wheelhouse because it's a more business-focused group of people that... Mm-hmm. Um, understand the value of using a, a user-friendly application for analytics that they don't have to use. They, they're very averse to having to go to a technology group to do anything for them. Mm-hmm. But on, on the other hand, you lose a little bit of the connection to the IT best practices and expertise that comes with making sure that uh, the whole system is organized to, to best effect. I think the best way to think about it is, you know, your IT team is always going to focus on how do we actually handle things the best way possible at scale, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it might not be optimal for the one person that's there. It might not be optimal, of course, for, for every specific team. Um, but it's about basically handling things at scale. And, of course, when we even think about server, right? The scalability of server is when mm-hmm. we can le- re-leverage and reuse information that other people are using. Um, so so it, it does end up being an issue. It does end up being an issue for us that when people can't partner, um, I think, with their IT teams, uh, they basically negate the the whole scalability conversation and the optimization that that can bring. Mm-hmm. Um, and that sometimes, of course, it's it's by choice. Sometimes, of course, it's. Uh, just the the cards that have been dealt, but it ends up being an issue either way. And I think when we think about overall BI strategy, you're going to need to involve basically parties that can maintain each perspective, your analytical perspective, as well as the at scale conversation effectively in order to really get the best use out of things. Yeah, it's it's a problem that I think we're still we're still not quite there as an organization. I don't think anyone is. I don't think it's like ta- no. a Tableau problem. It's just maybe a technology, uh, enterprise technology problem. Um, but I think th- we still don't properly allocate our communication between the business and technology. We consider either a technology sale or a business sale. Yep. Um, and that carries through to how we interface with the customers. That carries through to... Um, the solution that we present to our customers, and it all and it, it goes all the way back to our sales methodology. I mean, when we first started at Tableau, the way um, the sales methodology we were putting in place at Tableau at that time was around separating out business and technology, yeah. and having a technical person spend time with the business, and having a salesperson sp- or a technical person spend time with technology, a salesperson spend time with the business, and then have them come back together at the end when it's time to sign the papers. Right. Um, and I think we've realized over time that, um, you know, Tableau's done some things yeah. to bring that together. That's kind of what Drive is about. And there's yeah. other there's other things that we can point to. Um, but we still don't do a great job of bringing them together throughout the whole process. Um, so I think that's sort of I think in this situation, we have a customer that is saying we don't want to have to rely on technology to build out a data source for us every time we want to do some analysis, which is a valid concern. 
but we have to if if we were communicating back and forth if we were uh nurturing communication and facilitating those two groups working together uh-huh. then i think the it group would be willing to communicate with the business group around what they can do for themselves rather than just saying oh yeah we'll do it for you right it's it's a matter of facilitating communication in a way that maybe they're not used to so my 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 question then is is that a so I, I think with a lot of deals, I typically see the land aspect of it, right? Mm-hmm. The, the actual acquisition of the deal itself, the account itself, right? Yeah, and this um, is this is a land. This is a this is a this customer is a that has very little tableau. I mean, they have a few licenses here and there, but it's a really big organization. It's got hundreds of thousands of people employed there, and they have this would be probably the the most they've ever purchased. So I, I I would always see that as I guess my. I always see that as much more of a, a expand conversation that's there, mm. which yes, we do need to nurture, of course, the right practices in-house in order to achieve it. It's hard, I think, as an outsider to always be the influencers. And I think this ends up being sort of the things that probably our sales team will echo, right? It's hard being that one vendor who will approach things dramatically different and insist on more involvement across the board, right? Yep. Um, the uh, the well, main thing, of course, is you want to drive... The, the simpler effort is what will typically mm-hmm. be looked at as a favorable service. Yeah. I, and yeah, when I say land, I mean like this is a group that doesn't own any licenses right, right. now and they're going to buy some. I think they're going to buy some. So that's the land. Yeah. Maybe the expand is finding an operational efficiency to do this, to figure out this challenge that right. we're talking about. Um, so I get what you're saying. Um, I think... I, I think we do need to get a whole lot better at it, mm-hmm. um, and it's not us. It's it's really I think as an industry as a whole, there's no common ground I think or common practice that mm-hmm. says okay, well, once what is the right adoption strategy? Was the right things that we need to just nurture? Right. Just cause it's it's a uh, well, it's it's part of the investment of making the yeah. purchase right. Um, but the big problem, of course, that ends up there is. Uh, you know, sometimes the parties are are just not not friendly with each other, partially because yeah. of the technology, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, the IT team, of course, might be locked into one standard, whereas of course uh, this business user group has found actually some benefit with a Tableau. And of course, how do we actually get to conflicting parties on at the, at the table when, of course, there's nothing in common that's there other than well. Uh, if there are assets that are brought in, right? It's just the support of the overall goals. Yeah, I mean, you have to be able to uh, trust that the business needs of a customer will will be sufficient to to motivate them to do something, to to actually put effort into a project like that, and figure figure out what resources they need to bring to bear to make it work, right? Mm-hmm. So, like, we can't we can't force them to care about data, right? We have to uh, hope that the, the business is in a state where there's demands for information, for decisions to be made based on facts within the organization. And we can coach them a little bit on it and say, here's the value you get from that. But we can't be like, we can't make the CIO say, oh, we need reporting or we need data visualization. We need ad hoc analysis. That's just something we can't 
force them to do. So I, I was thinking about this while I was taking the train over, and one of the big things that I was well, I was actually thinking about the VizWiz competition and how do you actually communicate some of that to, to other companies and sort of the, the bare minimum qualifications for it. And I think it actually translates to a larger <clears throat> BI issue, right? You form a BI culture when a there's agreement that things can be done better and that B, that they should be done better, right? And the biggest problem I think that, that's there is there's sometimes a lack of B where people think that this is the best that I already have um, or at least one of the parties thinks that they already have the best solution and are not willing to basically approach the table just because they don't think there, there is a better solution at the table that's there. Hmm. I'm thinking about that. So you're saying... There needs to be an agreement that things could be done better and that things should be done better. Those are the, that's the binary you've set up. So you're saying that most businesses agree that things could be done better, but they yep. don't necessarily agree that things should be done better. Yep. They, they think that what they are doing is good enough. So there's, there's the, that aspect of good enough. Uh, there's the aspect of uh, is it efficient? Is, mm-hmm. is, it, is it worth basically that, that, um, that extra effort and resources that they would put in? I think that the the typical, the difficulty I think that a lot of businesses do have is ultimately convincing the should conversation, right? Uh, could, I think at the end of the day, um, if, as long as they can communicate the, the overall business goals, most organizations I think are supportive. But I think the should aspect is definitely one of those things where, uh, well, everybody needs to be a little bit better in terms of figuring out basically uh quantifying the resources that are needed as well as of course uh qualifying really what the the efforts are going to do that's that's an interesting perspective i think that does kind of apply to Mm -hmm. this scenario with the client that i mentioned because i think what they're probably struggling with right now is uh if they do find themselves looking at doing more analytics in tableau and they find that there's problems with that workflow or strategy that they've put in place. Um, what we'll probably end up re- recommending is, you know, what you probably need to have is have some, you know, maybe someone from Tableau come spend a couple of weeks with you and make sure that you have the workflow set up properly because, mm-hmm. you know, us coming in and every month or two weeks and just giving them some advice and being like, yeah, you need to improve this and that doesn't really help them. Yeah. But if we had someone, you know, if we sold them a professional services person for a week to come in and actually get the data sources that they need in place and coach people on how to get connected and start working with them, right. then they'd be sort of up and running. But that comes down to them saying, well, is that actually worth it? You know, yeah. Is it worth our time to do that? Um, are we getting, you know, maybe that would be a little bit better than what we're doing now, but is it really worth us spending money on that or spending the time, you know? Right. Um that's that's a good point. I don't know exactly how you uh, how you show them that. I guess that comes down to sort of an ROI conversation again, and just say you know, this does, is going to be yeah. worth it to you. Um, you know, there's been a lot of talk internally about do we start at Tableau doing value based selling, which is more about you know specifically targeted toward the value that people are going to get from our software and selling based on that rather than the capabilities and, and value of kind of the thought process behind Tableau, which is sort of how we sell now. Uh, what's your perspective on that? Do you think that's something that is going to become more valuable to us? 
I'm just I, specifically the value-based selling kind I, of perspective. I, I think the, how do I put it? I think of value-based, I think they're the, the typical ways that value-based selling manifests is kind of a pseudoscience. Mm -hmm. I never kind of agree with that. Um, here's, I think, where, where my thoughts really are uh, with it. Um, we should never be afraid to explore. Yeah. Uh, exploring is almost cost-free when it comes down to it. It's a waste of maybe a sum of your personal effort um, in the same way that I think when I was building some of the output dashboards, right? It's an mm -hmm. investment in my own time. Yeah. Um, there might have been more productive things I've done, but sure. Uh, it's, it was something that I wanted to, of course, spend my time doing. Um, now, the question of should is whether or not you should make this much more of an issue mm -hmm. that's there, right? Now that I have this dashboard, is it something I should encourage the rest of my team to, of course, uh, take notice? Should I, of mm -hmm. course, uh, involve our own Alpo team to optimize it as an effort? And we have to think about every sort of BI project in that light. So in the, this whole scope of value-based selling, I think it's helping people formulate basically that effort, right? As opposed to thinking about sort of the ROI that's there. Well, the ROI, I think, is what will justify the cost, but I, I don't think it's any sort of generic number uh, that, that will... Well, will... I mean, isn't that sort of the idea, though, that uh, you can go to a, to a business leader and say, hey, if you, if you buy our thing, mm -hmm. um, you'll, you'll reduce the costs associated with your business by 10%, or you'll make an extra million dollars a year, right? And you're only going to spend 100 grand on it, so it's worth it. Right, like that—that's the idea of any purchase that someone makes at a at a business. Is they're either doing it to Tracy Fagan line to make more money or lose less money, right? So, so I think it's this, right? I think the the only way that we can actually make it successful mm -hmm. is definitely bucking a trend of what everybody else has been doing, which is my my product will give you an X ROI, mm -hmm. this X expected value that is, has, you know, honestly is, could be pulled in a number of different ways, right? Yeah, and that's, it's, it's sort more of, of a, a calculation method yeah. around how do you assess risk and how do you assess value? And right? that is a difficult thing. I, I think right. you're right that it's a pseudoscience because, I mean, I've talked to, I know that there exists in the world of right. enterprise software people who that's their job, right? Yeah. Their their job is to kind of create some sort of pseudo mathematical method that they can say, "Here's your ROI, sir." And then, but I I always felt like that was a little weird, and I never really understood what the math behind it was, and I didn't really think, you know, there's certain things we've done at Tableau to show that you know you're going to save this much time or whatever. I I've never thought it was super helpful. Um, it's a productive exercise, and I actually find that to be more useful than any mm -hmm. sort of just generic number that's tossed out, right? Yeah. And that's the problem I, mm -hmm. I typically see where people are saying, okay, well, mm -hmm. typically clients in this industry have a 4% ROI or a 20% yeah. ROI, which so, I, I find is just, it's it's a stupid way of addressing it, right? Like why am I exactly the same as my competitor? If that's the case, mm -hmm. you know, there is no industry, right? It's yeah. just people operating and But exactly that's what the that's same. what businesses are used to is they're used to buying a product for which there are three identical products and it's really about what's the 
what's the most cost effective one? And they're all all the com- all the companies are going to come in right. and tell them that theirs is unique, but really when it comes down to it, it's all the same. And I you know I right. I really do believe that Tableau is unique in in the market we're in right now, but I, I don't know that everyone sees it that way. So so I think it boils down to this, right? We have to admit at least that. Mm-hmm. Value-based proposition or value-based buying uh, is a lot more complex for technology mm-hmm. as opposed to commodity that's yeah. there, right? And it's definitely not something. And I guess that's my the biggest pain that I typically have is sort of the, the generic number, provi- uh, you know, approach. So uh, we need, we need to talk about Kevin. Kevin, do you know Kevin? Kevin. There's this guy we hired about six months ago. Oh, I think I just had a call um, with Kevin. Yes, yeah. I, I, so know. I actually, so it's kind of interesting. So he was at that meeting in Washington I went to a couple uh-huh. weeks ago. And when we first hired Kevin, uh-huh. um, I was I was a little unsure. Uh-huh. You know, I was like, well, you know, this sounds kind of like that pseudoscience thing. Yeah. You know, I'm actually, I think now more convinced that he's going to be like his method uh-huh. is, is going to be pretty useful. Um, the way he positioned it with me when I, when we spoke at, at this uh, this meeting uh-huh. was it's not so much about coming in and presenting a percentage ROI or something like that. It's about the fact that when uh, a company buys something, at some point they're going to need to write up a business case. They're going to need to put together a documented case that they can present to their leadership or to purchasing or something saying, here's here's the value we think we're going to get from this technology. Right. And so Kevin's job, as he explained to me, was he's going to help them write it. His job is to just okay. to prepare that for the customer because he's done it with a lot of other customers and he knows how to approach those types of situations. And I think that actually is kind of useful. I think that is useful. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's a quantification exercise. It's still, of course, mm-hmm. tracking, but it, it's very it's centric, right? Yeah. It's, 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 it's more about yeah. specific to each customer. Here's, right. here's what we think you'll get it because we've talked to you about what you're right. doing rather than saying, oh, Forrester reports that you're going to get 127% ROI on average. Right. And, or, and that's, yeah. that's where I, I look at it, where I, mm-hmm. you know, at the end of the day, I mean, Gartner had a very favorable rating for us. Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, though, any of those are still going to be, uh, they're going to miss specific points. They're going to mm-hmm. look at just big picture stuff that's mm-hmm. there, and they're going to miss uh, the specific details that make a deployment very specific. Mm-hmm. Um, and the one thing I kind of keep in mind is I think that some of that information down the road is going to be more and more visible. It's going to be a requirement for the industry as a whole. Um, mm-hmm. 9.3, for example, we're tracking or making visible just the traffic behavior of yeah. each viz a lot more um, clearly. Hmm. I think when people are able to say, okay, well, on, in general, when I release a viz, there's 50 or so people over a course of three months that will eventually get to it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that's going to inform them about whether or not their next piece of content is going to be actually used or not, right? Um, and again, effort and cost and all that type of stuff. Yeah. Um, cool. I think um, I think maybe it's time for us to start wrapping up because we've been going for a little over an hour. But um, let's let's do a little recap here. Um, so, number one, Wilson is doing a bunch of vises that you can't see over the radio, but no. they're uh, they're great. They're, they're, they're they are amazing, um, and I will write about. Them. But yeah, we're we're thinking about one of the things that we're thinking about a lot is how we operationalize our sales at Tableau and what impact can we as you know individuals that just look at a small patch of the total company, what impact can we have on that? 
So I think that's an interesting thing that's both valuable for us in our job and also valuable for us to share um, share our findings with the world because it's an incredibly common use case. Right. Um, number two, you know, the uh, the challenge that comes from uh, approaching a customer like like mine and figuring out um, some unique challenge that maybe we this was an interesting one for me for me because I think we don't typically expect people to come at us from that angle. You know, I think people typically understand that, you know, there are always going to be challenges getting data to perform well and things right. like that. Um, but that was, that was just an area where I kind of had to go back to basics and think through that whole process. So we're making progress there, but it was just sort of an interesting uh, current event yeah. type thing for me. And yeah, I think the, um, the idea, you know, we keep coming back to this business technical kind of, split challenge that I think we, we mentioned it almost every time we record an episode, but I think that's such a, such an interesting thing. And it's something that's changing in business right now, or regardless of Tableau, it's changing for everything. You know, there's more and more companies presenting offerings to the market that are built for the business. They're not built for um, an IT organization to have to maintain and spend a lot of time with. Um, but what is the real cost and what's the value of that and how much is it really a business exercise versus mm -hmm. how much does technology still have to be involved? Those are things that I think we have to continuously monitor at Tableau. So, I mean, in that ties into maybe a discussion of the cloud that we should talk about in the future, because yeah. I think that'll be yeah, a this pretty whole big... idea. And I think, mm -hmm. you know, as we kind of approach it, it's, it's this evolving idea of whether BI is really just a, a fixed mm -hmm. infrastructure or ultimately something that's a little bit more ad hoc in nature. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I think we'll, we'll dive into it. We've both seen some issues around VMs and how people approach it, yep. uh, as well as, of course, cloud deployment. So uh, I'd be happy to actually get some of the guys that are also involved with that, that conversation uh, to really talk about their perspectives as well. Okay, cool. Well, um, until then, thanks for listening. Um, that was the Tableau on Tableau episode for the Valentine's Day slash President's Day edition 2016. Um, appreciate your time. It's snowing out, so we're going to go, um, you know, have some more hot cocoa or tea or whatever. Hot cocoa. I don't know. Like, doesn't that sound good? Yeah, it does. I don't know. I don't know. I'll tell you what's going on. Uh, it's frosty.